Alright, ladies and gentlemen, I just got back from watching The Boy and the Heron. And. Damn it. Son of a bitch did it again. Can't believe it. I want that jam. In the words, Public Enemies Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you, hope you, hope we all had a good week in the circumstances. God, that was a brain fart. Um, I usually have like two intros in it, so it's like either that or hope it was well, hope it was blessed. And yeah, I forget which one I'm doing sometimes. Anyway, but yeah, just a um, couple of like an hour or so from uh, seeing Boy in the Heron, and uh, yeah, just. Uh, there's just a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of heart when you watch a Studio Ghibli film, and I I think that's the main reason why I enjoy watching them so much because they just have this inherent inherent joy with them, and obviously there's you know deep messaging and stuff like this, but. Shit, man, it just looks so good. Just everything just looks so good. <laughs> it's crazy. Like some of the scenes look like they're from a Renaissance painting, and just have these moments of like silence, and then music comes in, and that's beautiful as shit. Kind of remind me of Tears of a Kingdom kind of music, to be honest. It was um, very close in terms of uh, how they both sounded. Um, but yeah, it's just um. This is beautiful, man. This is a beautiful watch. Um, nearly so close to shedding a tear in the end. Um, just watching the parakeets, you know, become parakeets. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just something about it. It just had this, um, I don't know, just like this release. And yeah, just nearly, nearly got me. Nearly got me. So close to get me. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's a great film. It's a great watch. And um, yeah, man, just another Ghibli dub. Um, it apparently supposed to feel... Uh, final. Um, I don't think I got that personally, but maybe if I watched it again with that in mind, I probably would understand it more um, on that finality aspect. It's supposed to be Miyazaki's last film, but then he's pretty much immediately came out and went, eh, I've got another idea actually, you know what, I'm, this, this ain't the last one, I might, I might be cooking another one. So we'll see how that goes. If he's cooking, he's cooking. Let the boy cook. And as I always say, there's no such thing as an artist retiring. Um, as much as some artists want to, shit just, inspiration comes, and, um, you know, that's, that, that's why I keep saying they never retire, these, you know, Skepta said he was retiring, now he's dropping an album sometime this year, I think, uh, you know, just, there's, there's, there's so many cases, so many cases, every time I hear an artist go like, oh, I'm gonna retire, I'm just like, no, you're not, you're not gonna retire, you will come through with something in the next few years, trust me on that, um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that's all. That's all. That's all that's on my mind at the moment. Um, obviously, since I just you just came out of the cinema. Um, yeah, just had some food, got some tea in me, and yeah, we're good to go. We're here recording, so let's get into it. Uh, we have a what do we have today? We have a society, music, social media, and tech episode for you today. Um, and before that. Before we begin, email, uh, socials, writing, all that in full show notes, as well as the music for the show and the podcast under the 5EPN. Um, and with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where the Greenland ice cap is losing an average of 30 million tonnes of ice an hour due to the climate crisis, which is 20% more than previously thought, uh, Japan makes moon contact for the first time with moon sniper mission. Um, great name for a mission. Uh, Pakistan and Iran uh, agree to de-escalate tensions after tit-for-tat attacks. Tit-for-tat attacks. Oh, that's, just, that's a nice tongue to it. Tit-for-tat attacks. Tit-for-tat attacks. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, drops out of Republican presidential race, which um, now leaves Trump and Nikki Haley, of all people, um, which is interesting. 
Um, apparently, apparently, um, uh, Indian uh, immigrant parents um, did, wouldn't have clocked that by the face, but um, yeah, apparently that's the case. I can't wait for um, good old uh, xenophobia to come through uh, on Trump's side. Can't wait for the. I think he's already started like the, you know, kind of like shades of birtherism. Barack Obama era kind of shit he's, he's starting that back up again I love how he could just be racist and nobody like calls him on it just that's fun that's great love that from a president um, and lastly Cameroon initiates the world's first routine malaria vaccine program for children and that's all good on that front so let's hop into our society topic and this is um, starting with good old slavery nice 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 smooth beginning we're going to start with some slavery um, but this is about reparations, as you can gather by the title of the episode. Um, so yeah, I saw this. Uh, I saw this piece. Always here for rep- uh, reparation talk, and uh, I saw the ter- I saw the I saw the words uh, more mainstream in quotations. So I like the sound of that. So it's immediate addition to this episode. So let's get into it. This is by Suyin Haynes uh, via Al Jazeera. It's called More Mainstream in the UK push for slavery reparations gains momentum. So let's jump right in. Malik Al-Nasir's research into a slave trading family for his doctorate was not only an academic project, it was deeply personal. The author and poet, who is of mixed heritage, discovered that his ancestors were not only among the enslaved people of the Sandback Tinny, Tinny, I'm going to say Tinny, T-I-N-N-E dynasty, uh, profited from but also the traders themselves. Sandback Tinny and Co., I'm going to say ST from now on. ST and co. monopolized uh, much of the Demerara sugar trade in the 19th century. Its influence and impact stretch far across the British Empire. And in the UK, the family's wealth and legacy is visibly seen today in institutions, businesses and legacies in British cities, including Liverpool, Manchester and Bristol. The company stopped trading only in 1975. Alnasir's award-winning PhD work at the University of Cambridge uncovered the missing parts of his history connected with his father's birth father's birthplace in Demerara in today's Guyana. Quote, it was important to me because I had to know who I was and how their barbaric trade of enslaved Africans shaped my life, he told Al Jazeera. They also shaped the lives of many others across the Caribbean and in the UK, in the Americas and also in Africa. I, so I found this work to be very essential but difficult, unquote. Over 20 years, Al-Nasir has built an archive of photographs and ephemera, love that word ephemera, uh, relating to ST. He has also gained the support of institutions, including the University of Bristol, to dig further into the family. In this southwestern city, in June 2020, Black Lives Matter protesters, angered by police killer George Floyd in the United States, toppled a statue of slave trader and philanthropist Edward, uh, Edward Colston and threw it into the Bristol Harbour. It was a scene that would be replayed across the world's media. At the time, tensions over the legacy of slavery and the roots of racism were raging globally, and the symbolic drowning of a slave trader kickstarted the national conversation about reparations. There are people who have who've been fighting for reparations since the time of slavery, said Al Nasir, who is writing a book tracing his ancestors back through slavery and colonialism, uh, focused on ST. The fight gained momentum again after the murder of George Floyd, he said. We have to seize this moment and try to do what we can to keep the spectre of reparations alive and maintain that momentum. Alnasir wants to establish a centre for colonial research and develop uh, doctoral training partnerships for black British researchers and black Caribbean academics. With the ST project, he hopes to create a multi-institutional network uh, to further research and exhibit material related to the family. He sees work like this as, as, like his, as a tool to enable descendants to delve into their histories and tell stories from their perspectives. It's one facet of a rich history that, uh, of calls for reparations and rep- reparative. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I think I say say reparative justice in Britain, led by descendants of enslaved people and diaspora groups, grassroots campaigners have long called for meaningful reparations as a way to address the historical and ongoing trauma stemming from Britain's role in transatlantic chattel slavery. In April, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak refused to apologise for the country's role in the trade of enslaved people and ruled out reparations. Research published by the University of West Indies two months later estimated that the UK alone is required to pay $24 trillion as reparations for its involvement in transatlantic slavery in 14 countries. (laughs) Uh, So that's the first time 
I've heard a number for Britain to pay. Um, I've heard it in. I've heard it in smaller cases, so you know, on a country by country basis, but not as an overall, uh, an overall, you know, tally. Twenty-four trillion dollars. <sighs> That's a lot. That's a lot. That ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Pressure built up further in August when a leading UN judge said the UK could no longer continue, uh, continue to ignore recourse reparations and urge the country to change its position. Uh, yes, the powerful UN, of course. Um, some descendants of enslavers have apologised for their ancestors, and for the first time, King Charles publicly stated his support of research into the British monarchy's historical links, historical links with enslavement after investigation by the Guardian newspaper into its own connections with slavery. Elsewhere in Europe, there are some moves towards recognising grim histories. Over the past year in the Netherlands, both Prime Minister and the King have apologised for slavery. In April, Portugal's president suggested his country should do the same. It's good now that the idea of reparations is not a fringe issue anymore, said Cleo Lake, a creative artist and former Lord Mayor of Bristol. In her earlier role as the Green Party councillor, uh, Lake brought forward a motion for an atonement and reparations plan for Bristol's role in transatlantic slave trade, uh, transatlantic trade in the slave people, uh, which was passed in 2021. Two London councils, Islington and Lambeth, passed similar motions the previous year, calling on the British government to establish a commission to study the impact of the UK's role in transatlantic slavery, its legacies and impact today. But none of these calls have been heeded, signalling the resistance to the concept of reparations within the UK's political establishment. Al-Nasir has, uh, has said he all has also been hit with backlash. There's a lot of defensiveness to this type of research and a lot of misunderstandings around it, said Cassandra Gupta, uh, postdoctoral research fellow at the Wilberforce Institute at the University of Hull who studies in institute who study who studies UK institutions and their links with enslavement. See, Al Jazeera has well, I'm obviously reading it from my phone, right? Al Jazeera does it in this way where they regularly cut off the word and put a dash. So I'm seeing misunder dash standings. So I got tripped up of of who studies UK in dash institutions, and it's just it's, it's it happens a lot. It's happening a lot, and it's really jarring. Me anyway, um, where was I? Gupta is from Trinidad and Tobago and moved from, to the UK in 2019. She saw, quote-unquote, in real time uh, the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement in her field uh, through an increase in jobs and roles related to research and links with slavery, including her role with the Guardian newspaper. Uh, she contributed to the Legacies of Enslavement project released in 2023, in which the Guardian committed more than £10 million pounds, uh, over the next decade to a restorative justice programme. Gupta hopes that other institutions across media, heritage and education will take note and for greater connections between the UK and Caribbean communities. There's such a big gap between what's going on in the UK and what's going on in the Caribbean, and, and that's something I feel so disappointed uh, about in general, Gupta said. The communities were talking about, the plantations were talking about, the people were talking about, and I'm speaking as a Caribbean person. The information is not getting there. I can't really see the impact, if I'm honest, she said, reflecting on a recent trip back home to Trinidad. That impact is the long-term goal for some policymakers. Ultimately, the first thing we need is for the UK to accept some responsibility, said Bill Ribeiro Adi, an uh, MP with the Labour Party and chairperson of the all-party parliamentary group for African reparations with a K, African with a K, APBG. Um, she convened the group's first conference in October. There have been more conversations in the mainstream, but I'm really encouraged by the momentum that the reparations campaign internationally has built, unquote. She hopes to see a move towards significant chain, uh, policy change, including in education and school curriculums. We are making the progress for, uh, which some people have fought decades for. Uh, born in South London to a Guyanese mother, Barbadian father, Esther Stanford Hoskos... <laughs> see? It's, this, it's the X. X-O-S-E-I. So... I don't know... I don't know stuff like that. So I don't know how to... I don't even know if I actually said that properly. I know it's a... But... I, you know what I mean? It's just a... Ah, uh, God. I'm going to say ESX just to... Just to be... Just to not butcher, because I don't want to butcher. Um, ESX um, has been uh, involved in the international reparations movement for more than two decades. As a specialist lawyer in jurisprudence, she know uh, she uses her legal knowledge in her efforts. 
In 2015, Essex uh, co-founded the Stop the Mangamizi campaign, which the which derives its name from the Swahili term for genocide and ethnocide of African people and the continuum of chattel, colonial, and neo-colonial enslavement. Uh, she says the campaign lobbied Ribera Adi for the APPG's establishment and the October conference. We're in a unique time, she said. Uh, the fact that reparations are becoming more embraced, recognised and supported by different sectors in society is really down to the movement and movement activists who have been out there doing public education, activism and narration. The first and most crucial demand is the establishment of the All-Party Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry for Truth and Repertory Justice, she said. That's a long-ass title. Uh, we, uh, we have to have a process of truth-telling and truth-restoration. We, uh, we assume we know the truth, we only know parts of the truth, but the history, our story, has not been told, unquote. Essex uh, acknowledged that seeds planted by previous generations are now bearing fruit, but in her view... The current push should be seen with some scepticism. The success of the government has led uh, to non-governmental organisations and powerful institutions seeking to capture the movement as a way of preventing it from achieving its radical ends, she said, referring to the Carib- uh, CARICOM, uh, Caribbean Community and Common Market. Ten-point plan for repertory justice, which calls for a formal apology, debt cancellation and investment into Caribbean countries by former colonial powers. In November, uh, in November the 55 members of the African Union and 20 countries of CARICOM announced the establishment of a global reparations fund based in Africa. We have our elites speaking on behalf of our communities, Essex said, um, to just redistribute uh, resources to colonial states is not repair. Resources meant for the wider masses get appropriate and redirected, and that is what we're seeing with the CARICOM 10-point plan. Essex said surface level uh, changes are being described as reparations, while systemic and structural changes are vitally needed. There's a form of reparations washing uh, called e- calling equity, diversity and inclusion reparations, <laughs> uh, DEI, that we talked about last week, funny enough, coming through once again. Uh, DEI reparations won't fundamentally uh, challenge the structural injustices and power imbalances. That's an observation that Lake also makes. Lake was the Lord Mayor of Bristol from 2018 to 19 and charts her involvement in reparations campaigning back to her childhood when she attended the Colston Girls' School uh, because it bore the name of the slave trader. Its name was changed to Montpellier, Montpellier High School in 2020. In 2021, Lake worked on Project Truth, which was commissioned by Bristol City Council, the uh, Bristol Legacy Steering Group, and detailed how the city should memorialise, or he tripped up on that one, memorialise his uh, involvement in the transatlantic trafficking of enslaved Africans. Although we've had a couple of moments of energy, I do feel that the radicalness of the African heritage community isn't what it was, Lake said. People's understanding of decolonization and some of these matters is about inclusion and replicating the oppressiveness. But that isn't what this campaign is about. It's about creating something new and trying to restore ourselves. Essex and Lake's uh, perspectives uh, demonstrate some of the tensions within the reparations movement as it comes becomes more mainstream. They are concerned they risk losing some of its more radical roots and ambitions and governments. Uh, rather than communities, will become recipients of financial aid. Oh, yes, well, can't fear, got to fear that. How long have we got? Uh, all right, cool. Got a few paragraphs left. See if I can uh, get through all of it, because I do want to get through all of it. They also see the reparations to be more holistic, for example, taking uh, the form of education, land and housing rights, and repatriation of cultural artifacts. There are so many different movements, so many different campaigns, and different voices on reparations, and they don't all agree. But what we aim to do is come to a consensus where we do agree with Bureau at the uh, at the October conference, which resulted in a statement calling for the establishment of a Truth Reparations and Justice Commission. Reparations is as much about the process as it is about the outcome, Essex said. Uh, for communities in Britain, our vision of a repaired world is totally different to what's coming out of the African Union or CARICOM. In 2016, film director John Dower discovered through University College London's Legacies of British Slavery database that his family, the Trevelyans, um, had owned uh, six plantations in Grenada, um, about Grenada, Grenada, I forgot how you say it, Grenada, no, no, um, at the time of Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. More than 1,000 people were re- registered as the family's property, and after the act's passage, the family were given as much as £29,000 in compensation. 
quote-unquote compensation. Uh, the British government gave a total of £20 million to enslaving families uh, from 1835 to 1843. My family was no longer the same family I thought it was, and my life literally changed at that moment, Dower told Al Jazeera. In February, Dower publicly apologised for his family's role in enslavement in Grenada. Uh, two months later, he co-founded Heirs of Slavery, a group intended to bring together descendants of those who made significant wealth from uh, or helped organise transatlantic child slavery to listen to the perspectives of grassroots and reparations campaigns. Dow said that since uh, Heirs of Slavery formed, about 200 people have approached the group. He estimated that as many as 70% of them are descended from enslavers or those involved with enslavement, whether that was plantation owners, shipping merchants or other beneficiaries. He hopes more people will join the initiative. I think once we start getting the groundswell of people who are willing to accept what their ancestors did and not view it as a terrible threat, then hopefully we can start to make some kind of significant change. Lake 2 speaks of critical mass of people coming together to enact change. I think it will take a massive groundswell of people uh, of African heritage. I just found it weird that they just both said groundswell. That's just really weird in the quote. <laughs> I thought I was saying the same thing. I think it will take a massive groundswell of people of African heritage coming together from various uh, different backgrounds and standing alongside each other to represent one group, she said. Those involved in reparative uh, repar- justice accept that they are bound uh, to be uh, divergent views but agree on one thing, that progress is a must and the Black Lives Matter movement acts as a catalyst. Reparations is really a liberat- is a really liberatory vision, uh, SX said. Uh, reparations is a world remaking project. As part of our remaking the world, as part of remake- remaking the world, we have to remake ourselves. Ah, <sighs> we got through it all. There we go. With, with just over twenty minutes. All right. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a worthy it's a worthy cause, right? It's uh, it's that's that's how I've always seen it at minimum as a worthy cause and i think it would be i think it's the e not the, not the easiest but the most obvious the most obvious notion that um if governments start to recognize this and they have um unfortunately the uk is just woefully behind because they just love to be woefully behind right um when we do get that then obviously the the 20 or was it 24 trillion <laughs> or something like that um you know that's obviously a number to to look for right and to just keep note of um but the that's that's, that's the that's the longest of long term right of actually you know reparations giving money but for the, at this point we have to still we have to look at just recognition and the fact that it's taking so long for people to even recognize and to you know the same with um sim- this is obviously closely related to education and you know teaching this history right and teaching this history to kids um is something that is necessary and it's not built to make white people feel guilty. That's not what this is about. Like, we're not here to... This is not... This doesn't exist to make your white children cry. It's not... That's not what we're here for. It's to tell you guys what's been going on. How it went on. And how it's kind of stayed alive in some ways. Right? Even though the... Um, the uh, you know the, the factual child slavery is now gone. There is still neo-colonialism. There's still post-colonial um, ripples um, that's happened over the years. Um, that's happening as we speak, right? In in certain things, um, legislation and just how we see each other and stuff like this. It's just um, it's 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 a it's a it's a task, a very large task, but it's a very necessary task. And um, hopefully, hopefully. Um, people start to recognise that as not a guilt thing, it's not nothing like that, it's a knowledge thing. The more we know, the more we can be aware of things like the wage gap, racial wage gap, gender wage gap in, in some cases, right? It's, ob- it's there, it's there. They, they just have to make these connections. But obviously, some people refuse to make those connections, and that's, that's, that's fine. But... Um, at some point, they're going to have to actually reckon with um, something that um, involves them. Maybe not. Um, maybe not in terms of you know their families benefiting from it or anything like that. But they have power to actually make changes, and 
Hopefully they can recognize that. Okay, let's hop into social media, and this is a very, uh, this is one of those stories I feel that um, if I didn't look for it, I probably wouldn't have known about it, right? And uh, as soon as I saw it, I was just like, come again? <laughs> it's just uh, the whole thing just uh, leaves a bad taste in my mouth, and uh, and obviously someone has to benefit from people suffering, and uh, in this case it is... Uh, um, digital giants, um, Google, Meta, especially, and uh, and Jumia, which um, I have just uh, recently learned is basically is it like Nigerian Amazon? That's, uh, any Nigerians uh, <laughs> let me know on that front? It's just a yeah, so it's basically Africa, African um, uh, yeah, Amazon. It's kind of Amazon, a kind of Amazon, Africa's number one on ti- online retailer shop, electronics, phones, books, fashion, and more. So basically. African, um, yeah, African Amazon, <coughs> and yeah, so this is um, via Open Democracy, written by Mukanzi Musanga, um, it's called Digital Giants Are Profiting From Harmful, get this, Vaginal Detox Products in Kenya, yeah, and you, f- you thought skin bleaching, <laughs> you thought skin bleaching was bad, okay, let's get to this one. Um, Eve uh, Waringi uh, was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, P. Uh, P- PCOS uh, during high school. Wairingi, who lives in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, was put on oral contraceptives to help regulate her period and manage other symptoms. But as she reached her 20s, the medication stopped working and she began experiencing extreme pelvic pain and gaining weight. It's been so frustrating, she said. The doctor advised me to work on my diet. When I went online to research on how best I could do that, I came across yoni pearls, which were described as herbal medicine. Waringi began to read reviews of Yoni Pearls, whose advocates claimed to have been cured of PCOS through their use. Some even shared ultrasound scans of what appeared to be polycystic ovaries prior and after, prior to and after using the pearls, which are small bags of herbs intended for insertion into the vagina. Okay. In reality, according to the WHO, PCOS is incurable and chronic. Wararingi bought a set of Yoni Pearls from the online shopping website Jumia Kenya, as she saw the platform as a trusted mainstream online retailer. Wararingi assumed the uh, suppositories had been medically approved by the Pharmacy and Poisons Board, PBB, Kenya's Drug Regulatory Authority. And then the problems began. The thought of permanently getting cured of this condition was exciting, she said. Upon using the second Yoni Pearl overnight as instructed, I started getting large blood clots, and that definitely wasn't menstruation. I was so scared. Alarmed by the clots, Raringi uh, read the product description and reviews again, which indicated that, quote, whatever comes out of the vagina when using Yoni Pearls is a purging, unquote. And so for a moment, her panic settled, but after using them for three nights, she developed an itchy, burning sensation and started getting a smelly, bloody discharge. God damn. Which made her self-conscious in public. No shit. Anyway, uh, continuing on, I was so scared of leaving the house because of the odour, which persisted despite me showering, she said. The discharge was heavy and non-stop. I had to carry extra underwear whenever I felt, uh, whenever I left home. The itchiness worsened, and I was in so much pain. Waringi finally decided to seek medical help. The gynecological examination revealed that she had developed an internal infection caused by the contents of the only pearls. I was put on antibiotics for two weeks, she said. I had never experienced anything like that. Fortunately, the treatment worked and the infection cleared. Wairingi says she will never use any vaginal detox products again now she knows how dangerous they are. No shit. Uh, Like many other online retailers and social media platforms, Jumia Kenya, a subsidiary subsidiary of the Nigerian-based e-commerce platform Jumia Group, is still promoting and selling a variety of vaginal detox products such as Yoni Pearls, vaginal tightening gels, and vaginal steaming herbs. Open Democracy posed as a buyer on the retailer's website and inquired about the safety of the Yoni Pearls on sale, asking if they had been approved by relevant health authorities. A Jumia agent responded by saying that the company was, quote, committed to offering customers 100% genuine products, unquote, and wouldn't sell products whose quality was questionable. Uh, Our team works hard on regular quality checks and takes the necessary actions to ensure that any seller found to be selling non-genuine products is immediately delisted on Jumia. 
the agent told Open Democracy during our conversation. On rare occasions, some products may face some quality issues. In fact, the Pharmacy and Poisons Board had issued an alert, issued an alert in August, uh, three months before we spoke to Jumia, advising against the use of Yoni Pearls on grounds of quality, safety or efficacy. It followed an investigation that found Facebook, YouTube, Google and Instagram had been profiting from content that posed a risk to the sexual and reproductive health of women in Kenya, including the promotion of and sale of Yoni Pearls. The investigation by the organisation Fumbua, F-U-M-B-U-A, Fumbua, uh, accused the internet giants of structural racism by failing to protect Kenyan women from being targeted with dangerous misinformation on unapproved medical treatments. According to Fumbua, uh, which works to counter mis- and disinformation, uh, products that claim to cleanse, detoxify, or improve your health of the vagina, such as Yoni Pearls, Yoni Steams, and Yoni Candles, are being aggressively pushed at uh, Kenyan women online. Some vaginal detox products, which doctors warn are associated with injuries, bleeding and infections, have been banned in Canada. In the US, a class action lawsuit was filed against Goddess Detox, the company whose pearls were barred from the sale uh, by Health Canada. Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle company Goop was also sued and fined $145,000 in 2018 by US Corp. for false advertising of jade eggs. Goop had uh, claimed the product different from Yoni Pearls, but simply intended for vaginal insertion had a range of health benefits. Leah uh, Kamathi, uh, 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 I'm assuming I'm going to say governor, but it's uh, spelled with a C, so it's governor. I don't know if governor is actually a word, so I'm going to say governor. Of the Council for Responsible Social Media, sent social media platforms such as Facebook, it just says face, Facebook, maybe? <laughs> We're under, under investing. Quote, when it comes to uh, the online safety of Kenyans and the rest of Africa compared to other parts of the world, unquote. Fumbua's investigation found that social media platforms were allowing ads and sales of these products and disinformation about them aimed at local women. Quote, uh, we have laws that address disinformation, but they are interpersonal in nature, said Wanjuri Ngui, uh, program manager at Fumbua. Uh, apologies if I butcher that name, uh, referring to the fact that Kenya's go- Kenya's laws govern how people behave online, but do not adequately police tech platforms. We don't have a framework that holds platforms accountable with regard to moderation of content. We contacted by Democracy, uh, spokesperson for Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, said, quote, We remove content that promotes harmful miracle cures for health issues, when the treatments are uh, widely deemed to li- widely deemed likely to directly contribute to the risk of serious injury or death, unquote. But a search, of, but a search Open Democracy conducted after receiving Meta's comment found that Yoni-related products were still being marketed on both Facebook and Instagram in Kenya, as well as on Google and YouTube. Google fails to respond at all when contacted by Open Democracy. Kamathi says there must be a strengthening of the country's regulatory uh, environment for digital products. We must begin to hold social media companies to account, she said. We are cognizant that our laws have gaps, that are, and that is where organisation like the council that I convene comes in to do an audit on where to strengthen our regulatory environment, unquote. Kamathi said the Council for Responsible Social Media is working on instituting regulations that will protect Kenyans since the community guidelines spelled out by social media sites fail to do so. She believes an Africa-wide framework and code of practice would provide the muscle required to enforce regulations that would protect Africans against big tech's reckless operations in the region. Nguhi, um, Nguhi, Nguhi uh, attributes the tech giant's blatant disregard for Kenyan women's safety against such predatory marketing to, quote, lack of accountability on structural level, unquote. Our governments across the continent need to seriously think about regulation of these platforms as an urgent African need, she said. We need to work across the continent for this to be realised. It's important that audience are protected uh, from the harm that comes from this unregulation. When asked by Democracy about the measures being taken to protect Kenyan women against sale of these products, the Drug Regulatory Board said that only that vaginal detox products were not under its mandate, despite having issued an alert about them in August. Yikes. Yikes, 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 yikes. Um, this is just, <laughs> just so jarring, so jarring. Uh, it, it reminds me, um, I do I do wonder, um, you know, I learned about um, something not obviously remotely related to this, but somewhat related to it. Um, I mentioned skin bleaching, um, and I find that kind of a, obviously a thing that, 
may not kill a person, or maybe it does, I don't know, maybe it depends what kind of fucking formula you use, maybe it burns your skin off, who knows, Um, but, you know, the things that affect your life, right, and um, I learned about skin bleaching probably nearly 10 years ago now, and I do wonder how it's going now, because in terms of regulation, because um, it's something that I recognised, um, you know, when you, when you watch um, certain things from certain countries, it kind of becomes obvious, right, if you, you know, follow certain people on social media, it kind of, it kind of comes across, um, if you've, if you've seen them long term, it's like, oh, their skin's lighter, that's weird, and it was, the, and it's a, it's a billion dollar industry, it's a billion dollar industry, probably more so than Yoni Pearls, right, I, I love the fact that, part of, by the way, just Gwyneth Paltrow got fucked off for this, just, just hilarious, um, that Gwyneth Paltrow, I, d- I don't know who, who 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 shops at Goop? Seriously, I I know I know who shops at Goop, but why <laughs> why why what's the what's the audience there? I need I need for it to be described to me. Like I know it's probably just white women, but what kind of white woman is doing that kind of shit? It's just uh, and, and does the does the is there a significant other to tell them that they're fucking crazy on their front? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. Anyway, so whilst I, you know, I'm not trying to link skin bleaching to yoni pearls, right? Because a little bit of a difference. But skin bleaching is a big thing in a lot of countries um, in the global south. And I'm going to assume that yoni pearls is an, is a, is an issue here. Uh, maybe not just for Kenya, maybe in other places as well. And to be for it to be, you know, sold in what I've gathered as, um, African Amazon, um, that's, that's worrying, that's genuinely worrying, and, um, you know, to have, uh, Google not respond is, that's just stupid, and terrible, and, you know, to ha- and, it, well, at least they didn't lie like the rest of them, but they just didn't, they did the second, they did the other worst thing, which is, didn't say shit, um, so they'll, they'll probably just happily continue on, on that front, um, selling uh, or helping to sell yoni pearls and shit like that um but yeah this is is a crazy story i just thought it'd be fascinating to read um because yeah there's just a lot of things going out there guys in terms of just um you know trying to improve life and um you know i've 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 tried stuff before but it ain't like um you know it ain't had me bleeding, you know what I mean, and uh, as as I've had the need for antibiotics on that on that front, but honestly, I think um, my eczema doesn't really allow me to be adventurous when it comes to that kind of shit anyway. So I don't I don't even try it. I just go for what I know. But um, yeah, man, just be careful, guys. Just honestly, because the, the this this is the lesson. This is the big lesson from all this. These digital media companies they ain't saving you. They are not saving you. They will not help you on this front. They will not help you. Like if you if you if you get if you get duped on this front, they ain't gonna help you. They ain't gonna save you. They are not your savior in the worst country. Okay, let's get into music, and this is all about the absorption of Pitchfork, and the uh, digital uh, music journalism application publication. Um, now gone into GQ and Condé Nast, and some, and obviously in that in that case, <laughs> excuse me. And um, yeah, that's a that's a bad thing, guys. That's a bad thing. I don't I don't think you know Pitchfork readers, whoever you guys are, I'm not really. Um, but you know, I do value. A variety when it comes to music journalism and any type of journalism it's good to have a variety of outlets and to have pitchfork gone which is a relatively big one um is worrying so uh, anyway speaking of which let's get into this one so this is uh, written by laura snapes uh via the guardian and uh yeah it's called pitchfork's absorption into gq is a travesty for music media and musicians so let's jump right 
In late summer 2011, I was in Norway covering a music festival for Enemy. One night at a party in another writer's hotel room, I got talking uh, to an American guy called Zach Kelly. Zach, it turned out, wrote for Pitchfork. As a 22-year-old music journalism freak, I could only imagine this was how it must feel to meet a member of your favourite football team. He kindly let me pin him to a corner to probe him about life there. He had started as an intern at the Chicago office and the kind of work he did. Um, that would have been a uh, thrill enough. Uh, meeting someone from a publication I perceived as so untouchable it was hardly worth aspiring to. Shortly after I got back to the UK, I got an email from the editor, an editor there, Mark Richardson. Zach had recommended me, and I would like to review albums for them. Enemy said no, but Mark persisted, and a year later Pitchfork asked me to become their first UK member of staff, an associate editor. I said yes. I tell this story as is one of hundreds like it. Pitchfork's editors were extraordinarily committed to investing in new critical talent. The writers and editors who were the driving force in unearthing and chronicling the defining alternative acts of the 21st century. As a website that Midwestern record store employee Ryan Schreiber founded in 1996 evolved into an authoritative professional outlet. Arguably not since the inky heyday of Enemy itself had a music publication developed such a distinct reputation, thanks in part to its famous decimal point scoring system and early take-no-prisoners reviews. Pitchfork even became a byword for a certain kind of music and music fan. Artisan before artisan culture took over everything, a little forb- forbidding, cloistered. Maybe you loved to, loved to hate it, but still clicked uh, through half a dozen times a day. The multimedia giant Condé Nast recognised that value when it bought the company in 2015, a moment that gave many pause. What were the ramifications of an independent publication that highlighted some pretty niche music being sold to a company of this scale? And why, given this site's massive diversification of critics and uh, music genres covered that decade, moving from its bread and butter indie rock to include pop and rap, was Condé Nast chief digital officer Fred Santapia proudly telling the New York Times that the acquisition brought a, quote, very passionate audience of millennial males into our roster, unquote. Eight years later, Pitchfork has reached the inevitable fate of seemingly every new media company. On 17th of January, Anna Winter, Global Chief uh, Content Officer for Condé, as well as uh, editor of US Vogue, emailed staff to say that they were, quote, evolving our Pitchfork team structure by bringing them into the GQ organization, unquote. Those long-term employees uh, tweeted their redundancies, including executive editor Amy Phillips, after more than 18 years. It wasn't entirely clear what team would be left to run a presumably strip-mined vertical on the GQ website. It is bleak on so many levels. First and foremost, job losses uh, during a straightened time for media. Pitchfork was one of the last stable music outlets going. Where else are the former staff and the site's uh, hundreds of freelancers meant to work now. Uh, incorporating Pitchfork into a men's magazine also cements perceptions that the music is a male leisure pursuit and undermines that the fact that it was women and non-binary writers. Lindsay uh, Zol- Zolads, uh, Jean Pelly, Carrie Batten, Amanda Petrusic, Petrus- Pet- Pr- Sasha Geffen, Jill Mapes, Doreen St. Felix, Hazel uh, Sills, Sills with a C, C I L L S. I'm gonna say Sills. Um, the fearless editing of Jessica Hopper, and then the most recent editor in chief, Pooja Patel, to name a handful, who transformed the website in the 2010s. It also suggests that music is just another facet of a consumer lifestyle, not a distinct art form that connects niche communities worthy of close reading, documentation, and when warranted, investigation. It was Pitchfork's Mark Hogan who reported that Wynne Butler of Arcade Fire, abandoned twined with the site's rise to relevance, had been accused of sexual misconduct by multiple women. Extramarital relationships that Butler says were consensual. But Pitchfork uh, that published writer Amy Zimmerman's report into 10 women accusing Sun Kill Moon songwriter Mark Kozilek of uh, sexual misconduct. Kozilek denies the allegations. I wonder whether GQ will invest resources into reports like this to sit alongside e-commerce pieces on how the best cordless stick stick vacuum will turn you into a clean freak. To take one current example from their culture newsfeed. That can't be... Seriously? Jesus Christ. Uh, I do wonder who reads GQ, but anyway... 
Pitchfork has many flaws. The dodgy reviews in, in the archives, the more recent overweening and ahistorical coverage, a strong sense of its own gatekeeping. And it has many great compares uh, in the likes of Stereogum, Consequence of Sound, the quietest NPR music, plus the recent blogging and newsletter resurgence. But as a big fish, its looming dissolution um, is comparable to HMV disappearing from, disappearing from the high street without a leading example to coalesce around, define yourself against, fight about. The notion that specialist music journalism can viably exist at all starts to fade into the margins. Apply with Ready Face in the UK with disappearance from shelves of NME and Q Magazine, a brand that appears to have long been recently sold, uh, to have been recently sold and revived as a pit, pitiable, pitiable blog? Pitiable? Okay, I don't realize that's, like, that's a word you could say. Some have lamented Pitchfork's optimist shift over the last dec- uh, past decade, where it, uh, where it once only reviewed Ryan Adams' cover of Taylor Swift's 1989, not the original, now pop is a key feature. And you can argue that it's less, it is a less specific proposition than it was in the late 2000s heyday when it became synonymous with the likes of Arcade Fire and Grizzly Bear. But that shift represents the voracious reality of modern music consumption. And Pitchfork was the only music outlet dedicated to publishing two to four long-form reviews of new records every day, highlighting everything from the latest indie and rap records to fiercely niche work, and always introducing new writers into the fold. I can't tell you whether Hanoi conceptualist Eprexels... I'm not even going to say that. Tepet? What, why? What is this? Is worthy this? I don't, I'm not going to bother. Read if you want. Is worthy of the 7.0 it got last week, but it heartens me that it's up there alongside reviews of Lou Reed's reissued final ambient album, Kelly Uchis's Orchideas, Orchideas, um, and Bob Dylan's Desire. I can't speak Spanish clearly. Um, from their great Sunday review series on classic albums missing from their archives. I know from having written dozens of these reviews how much work goes into them. Two editors, fact-checking, vinyl reads, a meticulousness that can be the making of young writers. Each edit imparting a lesson you carry with you. Features editor Ryan Domble's careful assistance on my first long piece for the site in 2012 pretty much taught me how to write profiles. And much as music... And much as musicians have to hate Pitchfork, a robust music media is pivotal for them too, exposing their work to a wider audience, mythologizing and storytelling in a way that leaves more of a lasting impression on listeners than marketing has ever managed. Bridging the gap between this is good music and this is a good artist, as Peter Robinson of Pop Justice put it, and paying them the respect of a close and fair critical read, even if that assessment is negative. A fulsome Pitchfork review can suddenly vault and act to a larger audience, take Mike Powell's review of Courtney Barnett's 2013 single Avant Gardener, or Sasha Geffen's review of MJ Lenderman's Boat Songs in 2022, or anything in uh, anything by Deep in the Weeds rap critic Alphonse Pierre, or shift the terms uh, by which you which you're seen as with Jessica Hopper's masterful review of Lana Del Rey's 2015 album Honeymoon. You might say, when, why do I need Pitchfork when I'm reading several thousand words on this, guard, on this in The Guardian? But specialist music publications can do much that the music sections of generalist title and newspapers cannot. Just recently, Pitchfork surprised me by accepting a Sunday review pitch on an astoundingly obscure album. It's yet to run, but who knows if it will now. The kind of piece we couldn't justify here, as it has little cultural currency or news relevance. But in writing it, I got to contact the National Library of the Artist's home country to ask them to dig out newspaper clippings from the 80s and their original record label for my contemporaneous artifacts to ferret around on obscure forums, excavating information tucked into dusty archives for a wider audience. There is value in this that doesn't register with parent media companies fixated on the bottom line, which instead, as with Bandcamp's recent woes, condemn platforms that don't meet their shifting goalposts. Remember Pivot to Video? to the enshittification that is becoming uh, that is coming for the last good pass of the internet. Sure, we don't like, uh, sure, we don't know what Pitchfork XGQ will look like yet, but there's a clear clash in values between an outlet that prioritizes criticism and one that revolves around access to celebrities. Even trying to assess the issue through Condé's corporate lens strains logic. Pitchfork was one of the, its most agile, fast-moving brands. One Condé audience uh, development editor tweeted that, quote, by volume, Pitchfork has the highest daily site visitors of any of our titles, despite scant resourcing, especially from corporate, unquote. 
nimble publications like this can be canaries in the coal mine for parent companies to try out new ideas to receptive, youthful audiences that might be then uh, that might then be transported to more sclerotic titles. Sclerotic, jeez. Maybe it moved too far. This is why I can't do reviews because I, I don't even know words like that. Sclerotic. Uh, maybe it moved too fast for uh, such stodgy leadership embracing a far greater spread of representation that alienated Pitchfork's perceived formative male audience, who over the size existence have moved from their 20s to their 40s, perhaps without bringing in uh, sufficient replenishers, thus eroding an easily defined marketing demographic. If that is what they think about what and who music criticism is for, perhaps Conde should try being as adventurous with staking out new readerships and revenues as its misunderstood acquisition was at finding new voices, both behind the mic and the keyboard. <sighs> and again, like I, I don't really care for Pitchfork. I find you know the reviews, whilst obviously adventurous in that in that um in that case, um but um you know they 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 suck sometimes. <laughs> Just the review, like I don't I don't like reviews that you know give off the vibe that it's Pitchfork making it. It's not Pitchfork making... Well, obviously, the editors pick the number. I'm assuming the editors picked the specific number. But the reviewers write the review. So that should count for something. I feel the I feel the person who's writing should make the number. And I don't know if that's the case. I, I assume it's the editors. Um, since, you know, they're picking titles. So they, they might as well pick numbers as well. Um, I find that shit so... Sometimes just disingenuous and just like just being tools for tools sake and you know trying to be different um and i don't like that attitude in terms of that but with all that said i appreciate variety i appreciate the fact that pitchfork exists i appreciate the fact that you know these publications however however big or small exist um they they help they help artists um you know i i don't really help artists on that front, you know, I talk about artists on a weekly basis on digging digits and, you know, that's, that's a small thing and that's literally it, that's, and, you know, I interview a couple of them a year um, if they're down for it and that's, that's calm, but, you know, I'm not doing pitchfork, I'm not doing, like, you know, long form reviews every day, um, that's just not my steez um, and, you know, not everybody, you can't just have, like, you know, Fantano, and then that's it. And um, Snapes is right about, you know, The Guardian not being the place for this kind of stuff, because even when they, even when I see reviews on um, albums of note, they, it's literally just a few paragraphs long. And I'm just like, shit, if that's the case, let me be a music reviewer. I'll write, I'll write more than fucking 200 words. That's fine. I can do that easy. <laughs> just give me the check. I'll do it. Like, it's just crazy. So, you know, Guardian ain't the place for this kind of stuff, and there needs to be there needs to be these niche spots, and this is why, you know, I listened to a podcast recently about just um uh about the internet basically, and there was a point where they were talking about um just uh how do you want to word it uh they were talking about um how corroded the internet got is getting and has got right, and that lack of niche is just. It's there, but it's not there, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? It's being exhumed into these, uh, it's like Condé Nast and stuff like that. It's just, that's not that's not helpful. It's not helpful. It's really not. I I don't see pitchful readers, however dedicated they are, going to GQ. It's just not going to happen. And um, I feel like that's the value of um, knowing who the writers are. I wish, you know, people were more... I wish writers, I, I don't know if this is a bad thing to say, um, but I wish writers were more of a brand in that sense, right? I wish people followed writers more than they followed publications. I really do wish that um, because having following one publication is a bit odd to me, um, especially when it comes to, you know, specific things like this, is in this case, music journalism. It's odd. Um, find your writers. Find people that you like reading, and go from there. I feel like that's the way to go at this point. Um, but maybe it ain't. But for it sure as shit ain't um, stuff like Pitchfork being absorbed a by a being absorbed by Condé Nast, and then b being um, shoved into um, <laughs> shoved into the sidelines via GQ. That's for damn sure. Thank you.
Taylor's finish on tech, and this is all about uh, copyright lawsuits, New York Times versus OpenAI specifically, and uh, maybe what what that what that holds for you know a OpenAI and AI in general, and you know, and if it can be even be used um, to the to the point. Um, this is written by Clark uh, Adam Clark Estes. Um, hope I'm saying the last bit right. Um, via Vox is called how copyright lawsuits could kill OpenAI. If you're old enough to remember watching the hit kids show Animaniacs, you probably remember Napster 2, the peer-to-peer file-sharing site which made it easy to download music for free in an era before Spotify and Apple Music took college campuses by storm in the late 1990s. This did not escape the notice of the record companies, and in 2001, a federal court ruled that Napster was liable for copyright infringement. The content producers fought back against the technology platform and won. But that was 2001, before the iPhone, before YouTube, and before generative AI. This generation's big copyright battle is pitting journalists against artificially intelligent software that has learned uh, from and can regurgitate their reporting. Late last year, the New York Times sued OpenAI and Microsoft, alleging that the companies are stealing its copyright content to train their large language models and then profiting off of it. In a point-by-point rebuttal uh, to the lawsuit's accusation, OpenAI claimed no wrongdoing. Meanwhile, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology and Law held a hearing in which news executives implored lawmakers to force AI companies to pay publishers for using their content. Depending on who you ask, what's at stake is either the future of the news business, the future of copyright, the future of copyright law, the future of innovation, or specifically the future of open AI and other generative AI companies, or all of the above. Ideally, Congress would step in to settle the debate, but as James uh, Grimmelman, a professor of digital and information law at Cornell Law School, told me, quote, Congress does not like to legislate on copyright unless there's a consensus of most of the players in the room and there's not anything resembling that consensus right now. So Congress may hold hearings and talk about it, but we're really far from any legislative action, unquote. So what is it? Advocates of technological innovation would say that AI technology is full of promise, and we'd, be, we'd better not stifle that while it's in, its early days, uh, in the early days of development. Media companies would say that even exciting technology companies need to pay when they use copyright content, and if we give AI a free pass, journalism as we know it could eventually cease to exist. The consensus of casual observers and legal experts alike is that this New York Times lawsuit is a big deal. Not only does the Times appear to have a solid case, but OpenAI has a lot to lose, perhaps its very existence. If you ask ChatGPT a question about, say, the fall of Berlin Wall, there's a good chance some of the information in the answer has been culled from New York Times articles. That's because the large language model, or large language model, or LLM, LLM, uh, that I like saying that LLM, <laughs> powers GPT, has been trained on over 500 gigabytes of data, including newspaper archives. Generative AI tools only work because this training data helps them know how uh, to effectively respond to prompts. In other words, copyrighted data, in part, is what makes this new technology powerful and what makes OpenAI such a valuable company. The New York Times claims that OpenAI trained this model with copyrighted Times content and did not pay proper licensing fees. That The lawsuit says enables OpenAI to, quote, compete with and closely mimic, unquote, the New York Times perhaps by summing up a news story based on Times reporting or summing up a product recommendation based on wire cutter reviews. Even worse is that the is what the lawsuit calls regurgitation, which is when OpenAI spits out text that matches Times articles verbatim. The Times provides hundred examples of such regurgitation in the lawsuit. In its rebuttal, OpenAI said that regurgitation is a rare bug that the company is working to drive to zero. It also claims that the Times intentionally manipulated prompts to get this to happen and cherry-picked their examples from many attempts. By the end of the day, the New York Times argues that OpenAI is making money off of content and costing newspaper billions of dollars in statutory and actual damages. By one estimate, uh, given the millions of articles potentially implicated and the cost per instance of copying, the New York Times might be looking for $450 billion in damages. OpenAI has a clear solution to this conflict. Pay the copyright owners up front. The company has already announced licensing deals with folks like the Associated Press and Axel Springer. 
OpenAI also claims that it was negotiating a deal with the New York Times right before the newspaper filed this lawsuit. Just how much OpenAI is willing to pay news outlets is unclear. A January 4th report in the information uh, that said uh, said that OpenAI had or has offered some media firms as little as between one million and five million dollars uh, to license their articles for use in training its LLMs, which seems like a small amount of money to OpenAI, currently aiming for a valuation as high as a billion hundred billion dollars. But the mounting lawsuits, should they go against a company, could be far more expensive expensive than paying heftier licensing fees. The New York Times is also not the only party suing OpenAI and other tech companies over copyright infringement. A growing list of authors and entertainers have been filing lawsuits since ChatGPT made its splashy debut uh, in the fall of 2022, accusing these companies of copying their works in order to train their models. Copyright holders filing these lawsuits extend well beyond writers too. Developers have sued OpenAI and Microsoft for allegedly stealing software code. While Getty Images is embroiled in a lawsuit against Stability AI, the makers of image-generating model Stable Diffusion, over its copyright files. When you're talking about copyright and you get statutory damages, uh, said Corinne McSherry, legal uh, director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, if you lose, the downside and the financial risk is massive. While it's easy to compare the Times case to the Napster one, the better precedent involves the VCR, according to McSherry. In 1984, a years-long copyright case between Sony and Universal Studios over the practice of using uh, VCRs uh, to record uh, TV shows made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The studio alleged that Sony's Betamax videotapes could be used for copyright infringement, while Sony's lawyers lawyers, uh, argued that taping shows was fair use, which is the doctrine that allows copyright, copyright material to be reused without permission or payment. Sony won. The judge's decision, which has never been overturned, uh, said that if machines, including VCR, have non-infringing uses, then the company uh, that makes them can't be held liable if customers use them to infringe upon copyrights. The entertainment industry uh, was forever changed by this case. The VCR let people watch whatever was broadcast on TV whenever they wanted, and in just a few years, Hollywood studios actually ended up seeing their profits grow in the VCR era. The machine got people more excited about watching movies, and they watched more of them, uh, more of them both at home and in theaters. If you have to go to copyright owners for permission for technological innovation, you're going to get a lot less innovation. McSherry told Vox. That in mind, there is one more copyright lawsuit worth looking at: the Google Books case. In 2004, to, uh, Google started scanning books, including copyrighted works, so that snippets of their work uh, should, would show up in search results. It partnered with libraries at places like Harvard, Stanford, the University of Michigan, as well as magazines like New York Magazine and Popular Mechanics that wanted their archives digitized. Then came the lawsuits, including the 2005 class action lawsuit from the Authors Guild. The authors cried copyright infringement, and Google claimed that making books searchable amounted to fair use. Excuse me. As Judge Denny Chin uh, said in a 2013 uh, decision dismissing the author's lawsuit, Google Books is transformative because, thanks to the tool, quote, words in books are being used in a way that they have not been used before, unquote. It took about a decade, but Google eventually won, and Google Books is now legal. Like Sony and Napster before it, the Google Books case is ultimately about the battle between new technology platforms and copyright holders. It also raises the question of innovation. Is it possible that giving copyright holders too much power could stifle technological progress? In 2013, uh, in that 2013 decision, Judge Chin said its technology quote advances the progress of the arts and sciences uh, while maintain, uh, maintaining respectful consideration for the rights of authors and other creative individuals and without adversely impacting the rights of copyright holders, unquote. In the 2013 economic study of the effects of Google Books, found that, quote, digitization significantly boosts uh, the demand for physical versions and allows independent uh, publishers to introduce new editions for existing books, further increasing sales, unquote. So I consider that another point in favor of giving tech platforms room to innovate. Few would disagree that technological progress has shaped the media business since the invention of the printing press. That's basically why the earliest copyrightable laws were being written over 300 years ago. Technology made copying easier, and authors needed some way to protect their IP in search property. But AI is a bigger leap forward, technologically speaking, than the VCR, Napster, and Google Books combined. 
We don't know yet, but AI seems destined to transform our understanding of copyright and how content creators get paid for their work. It will take a while too. A ruling in the New York Times case against OpenAI will take years, and even then, questions will remain. I think generative AI could be as transformational for copyright as the printing press, said Grimmelman, the Cornell Law Professor, uh, but that will probably take a little bit longer to play out. I feel like I'm going to talk about this down the line. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be the first time, the first and only time I'm going to talk about this. Um, so I'll leave my thoughts. Um, I'll leave my thoughts to this. I'm keeping it short. I I'm always up for the the person, the person and their work and intellectual property. Um, I'm all for that person. I'm most of the time I'm defending that person, right? Um, but I do respect the fact of, um, you know, in the case of like Google Books, having that, um, having those small snippets of those books and maybe the whole thing, having the whole thing digitized um, is beneficial. And I don't, honestly, I don't really see AI being that kind of benefit to the, to the author um, unless they, unless uh, when they're given answers, you know, I use that, um, I use Bing AI now and again um, for certain things, um, and they produce, you know, links towards um, the information that they use, right? And I find that good. I find that that's a good thing that that should happen all the time. Um, and if you're, if it's using anything, I feel like there should be just, um, you know, just a, a a note just to say that it's like, you know, this is using um, this is using uh, content from the New York Times, this is using content from the Associated Press, stuff like that. I don't think that's that's a, that's a big ask um, to give credit. Um, and that's that's all this is, is a credit issue. It's all about giving credit, right? It's all about credit and also obviously, you know, using people's work for um, their monetary gain. And obviously that's a bigger kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, this is an issue that will go on for years and uh, this will definitely not be the last time I'm going to talk about this. So with that said... We'll leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, from the 5VPN, I'm Richard Taylor. This has been What's Good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for being to use. You can find both links in the full notes, as well as friend of Ivy Nappy Hires, uh, Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.